0: as we continue going through the journey of Acts, Paul, and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. I know many of you here this morning are familiar with Kurt Cameron. He played Mike Seaver on The Growing Pains, right? And and many of you know that uh, Kurt Cameron's been kind of um, in the news lately. He's a very strong evangelical Christian, Uh, He does the Way of the Master videos with Ray Comfort. But recently, in past weeks, he was on the Piers Morgan show on CNN. And Piers Morgan asked him what he believed about gay marriage and about the issue of homosexuality. And, and Kirk Cameron basically gave a biblical answer. He said marriage is to be defined between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And, and he did explain that he believed that, that the practice of homosexuality is a sin. And basically what happened is, is that he got lambasted by the media. Um, people that were his former uh, cast members on Growing Pains basically sent some nasty Twitters out there. I think Alan Thick said he needed to be spanked for what he said. You know, the dad on Growing Pains, if you used to watch that show. But basically, Hollywood accused Kirk Cameron of being hate-filled, of being a religious bigot of basically being closed-minded, and all these things just thrown at him for basically declaring the biblical truth. And so this is indicative of our culture, how our culture responds to biblical truth. If you and I stand up for what the Bible says about God, about what the Bible says about the gospel, we need to be prepared for what's going to come our way. And so let me just say it loud and clear. Persecution is coming to America, Now, it may not be in the extreme forms that we find in other nations, but it is coming. Whether it just means that, uh, that you're going to be made fun of for your faith or whether you're going to be um, laughed at or marginalized, it, it, there's an interesting thing. It's called the intolerance of tolerance. You see, there's a lot of people out there that say we need to be tolerant of all types of belief systems, but yet the people that preach tolerance when it comes to Christianity, they seem to be the most intolerant of that viewpoint. So it's interesting, the intolerance of tolerance. But yet not much has changed, has it? I mean, they hated Jesus during his day. They hated John. They hated Peter. They hated Paul. As a matter of fact, listen to the words of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus means that we will be the target of animosity. In John 15, 18-19, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Listen to the words of Paul. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They're going to hate you because of Jesus, and you will be persecuted. It's happened any time that you claim that you love Jesus. Now, last week, we were in Acts chapter 13, and what did we see? Paul and Barnabas were in the town of Antioch. And as they were in the town of Antioch, what did they do? They got persecuted. They shook the dust off their, off their shoes and they left and they went to another town called Iconium because they had faced persecution. And so as we dive into chapter 14, we're going to find that not much has changed from town to town. Like I said last week, in the book of Acts, When Paul and Barnabas or Paul would enter a new town, you have one of two responses, either riot or revival. People get mad or people getting saved. And that's what's happening here. They're about to conclude their first missionary journey. It's traditionally called the first missionary journey. And so when we look at this, first missionary journey is at the close of it. What I want to do in chapter 14 is I want us to look at four movements. (coughs) Excuse me. Four movements Four overarching themes, four issues related to how they conclude their first missionary journey. So here's the first one. Here's the first issue that they deal with. They preach the gospel in the face of hostile opposition. They're going to preach the gospel in the face of hostile opposition. Let's read together Acts 14 1 through 7. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to, surrounding, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now remember, I want to show you the map up here because we need to get our little fancy maps out here. Antioch right over here on the left on the right hand side that's where they leave you remember they go down to Cyprus last week we saw they went all the way up to Antioch and Pisidium they get um, persecuted there so they're going to go down to Iconium which is the next town They're going to get persecuted there. They're going to go down to Lystra. Paul's going to get stoned there. They go to Derby, and then they're going to go all the way back through those towns and come back to Antioch. So just a a visual representation of, of where they're going. And most of your Bibles, if you look at the back of most of your Bibles, they may have maps there of the missionary journey, so you can kind of keep track of all these towns. But here's the issue. When Paul goes into a city, what's his missionary method? When he first goes into a city, he's going to go into the Jewish synagogue. Because when he goes into the synagogue, he's hoping to find a group of Jews there that understand the Old Testament, and he can begin there with the Old Testament and see if he gets a hearing. But most often what happens is the Jews begin to persecute him, and so he goes on to the Gentiles. And that's what's happening here. It says they were poisoning their minds. They wanted to stone Paul. There was a great commotion. And so Paul and Barnabas hear about this, and what do they do? They hightail it down to Lystra and Derby, because who wants to get stoned? But then, in verse 4, it says something very interesting. It says, in verse 4, the people of the city were divided. There were division. There were two sides. Let me just say, that's what the gospel does. When the gospel comes in with power, it creates division. It separates the wheat from the chaff. What did Jesus say in Luke twelve, fifty-one through 53? Here's what the gospel does. Here's what Jesus says. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus is saying is that when you come into town and you begin to preach the gospel the message that Jesus is the only way of salvation that there is a, uh, that we're all sinners under God's wrath and the only way we can be rescued is through Jesus it is going to cause division and if you go back and read the gospels Matthew Mark and Luke John what do you find there's always division surrounding Jesus and the same thing happens with Paul and Barnabas there's division but here's what's amazing In the midst of this fierce opposition, in the midst of people wanting to stone them, Paul and Barnabas do two amazing things. And it really shows the power of the gospel when you look at these two things that they do. Here's the first thing they do. They continue to speak with boldness so that many people come to faith. Notice the words that are said there. In verse 1, it says, they spoke in such a way. Verse 3, they remain there a long time speaking boldly. And then down in verse 7, they continued to preach the gospel. In other words, they didn't back down in the face of opposition. And here's what the temptation always is. There's always a temptation to water down the message when things get rough. We want to water down the gospel, make it not so offensive, so that hopefully people will listen to us. Now, we don't want to be offensive for offensive sake. We don't want to be rude. We don't want to be unkind. But we have to realize that the message of the gospel itself is offensive. It's rude. Some people will think that we're rude when we share the gospel. Listen to this. The gospel will either be beautiful to some, or it'll be the worst-smelling thing they could ever imagine. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians two, fifteen through 16 He says this, For we are the aroma, the smell, the beautiful smell of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death but to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <clears throat> the gospel is offensive. And there's a temptation to want to water it down. But here's the, here's the beautiful thing about this passage. In the midst of the, te- of the persecution, in the midst of the opposition, they don't back down on the message. What does God do? It says, God saved many. A great number believed. So, so don't buy into the lie that somehow you have to water down the message in order to get people to believe. The exact opposite is true. When you water down the message, what do you have? You don't have the message. And how does God save people? God saves people through the gospel. And we need to always be remembering that the power of the gospel is a salvation to to all who believe. And so when you basically water down the gospel, you cut the guts out of the gospel and then you cut the power out of the gospel and then nobody's gonna get saved because what they're gonna gonna get is a message that has no saving power. And so here's the second thing they did here. Not only did they speak boldly in the face of opposition, but they labored a long time. They endured the hardship. Notice what it says there in verse 3. They remained for a long time. Now, this doesn't make sense to me. Why in the world would you stay in a town where you're getting persecuted? The heat is rising, they're wanting to stone you. Normally, what happens when things get rough, what do we want to do? Get me out of here, God, to a place that's more comfortable. I don't want to have to experience this. Why would I stay here a long time? And here's the issue. With Paul and Barnabas, they simply loved lost people. They knew that lost people were in that town that needed to hear the gospel, and they were going to stay as long as it took for those people to hear and respond to the gospel message, even if it meant extreme persecution. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10, let's know what Paul says. I endure everything. And if you go back and read the life of Paul, that everything involves a lot. Beatings, imprisonments, being thrown in jail, uh, being stoned, as we'll see here in a few moments. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul loved lost people, and that's why he put up with all this stuff, because he wanted lost people to hear the message of the gospel. And so they spoke boldly. They endured, they they waited patiently to see God do a work in that city. So the first thing that we see here is they preached the gospel in the face of hostile persecution. Now, when you think of Scotland, what do you think of? Bagpipes, anybody? A kilt? Funky accents? Maybe Braveheart? You're like, why is he talking about Scotland? Edinburgh, Scotland, has become one of the most pagan cities in all of Europe. Every year they have this fire festival where they come in all this pagan regalia and try to and, and bring in all this druidism type stuff to basically get back to the Celtic pagan um, festivals. And so it gets about 12,000 people to Edinburgh, Scotland. And what's interesting about Edinburgh is back in the 1800s, it was where secular humanism and atheism started that's where Charles Darwin was educated was in Edinburgh Scotland now they have an evolution museum there that's sponsored by the state of Scotland by the country of Scotland it sells a lot of new age types things and so when you think of paganism I don't know what you think of when you think of paganism maybe it's some guy in a toga out burning um, incense or, or standing before a fire with Stonehenge in the background I don't know I don't know what you think of when you think of paganism But I want to tell you something. America is about as pagan as it gets. We are a culture that worships gods and goddesses. Now you may be saying, Okay, Sean, I don't see pictures of Aphrodite. We don't have statues here in Sterling. Uh, We're not worshiping Zeus. Where are the gods and goddesses of our culture? I will tell you where the gods and goddesses of our culture are. They're called movie stars. They're called athletes. They're called entertainers. They are the gods and goddesses. They cover every magazine while you're waiting in line at Walmart. If you want to see what our culture worships, just look at the glossy magazines. Our culture worships at the altar of movie stars. And how do we pay homage to them? We obsess over every detail of their lives. We have TMZ, Twitter, and tabloids. We want to follow these people. And then we go to their temples. You're like, I don't see any temples. Where, what temples do we go to of these gods and goddesses? They're called stadiums. They're called arenas. That's where the gods and goddesses of our day play. It's a sophisticated paganism. We're not worshiping out in some field somewhere or like a little rock statue or something. It's a sophisticated paganism, but it's paganism nonetheless because here's what happens. When you worship at the altar, paganism, basically what you're saying is, is I'm worshiping something vain. I'm worshiping something empty that's no one going to lead me to despair, leading me to frustration. It's never going to bring everlasting joy. Now, why do I bring up paganism? Just so I can rant about it? No. Here's the second thing we see in the book of Acts. They preached the gospel in the face of heathen paganism. First of all, it was hostile persecution. Now it's heathen paganism. Now let's continue to read and see how this paganism shows itself. Let's look at verse 8. Now at Lystra, okay, so they've hightailed it out of there, out of Iconium, because they were threatened to get stoned. They come to Lystra. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead but when the disciples gathered about him he rose up and entered the city and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe all right they go to Lystra there's a man that's crippled they heal him God does an amazing miracle signs and wonders there and the people begin to get all get all crazy and we see something in stark contrast to what we saw last week Who was Paul's audience last week? He was in a Jewish synagogue. People that had been raised on the Old Testament law. And so last week, what did he spend all his time doing? Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He tells the old stories of Moses and David and the Red Sea. These people don't know anything about that. They're a Gentile audience that's clueless to the Bible. Very similar to our post christian culture today do you realize we live in a culture where biblical literacy is an all-time low you go out to the world today and talk to people about basic bible stories a lot of people have no idea what we're talking about they have no concept of the christian god and so what paul's going to do here is he's going to start with a different starting point with these pagans okay let me tell you a little bit about lystra Lystra had a stereotype. Now, we don't know if the stereotype is true, but here's the stereotype of Lystra. These people were gullible, backwoods, superstitious people that were willing to believe anything. Now, we don't know if that's true, but they had the, the reputation of being very gullible, very suspicious, superstitious, very um, pagan. And so what happens? When they see this miracle, they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas' as Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, Now, here's something else you need to know about Lystra. Many, many years earlier, there was a legend in Lystra. The legend was this. The legend said that that Zeus and Hermes came down in human flesh, and they visited a village of Lystra. And there was one elderly couple that took them in and showed hospitality, and that house became a pagan temple. But all the other houses that they went to that did not show them hospitality, they destroyed and so the people now are thinking, we better get it right this time because um, Zeus and Hermes have showed up on the scene, and if we get it wrong, we don't want our house destroyed. So they're living in superstition, thinking that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes. And how did Paul and Barnabas respond? They're, they're, good, go- they're good God-worshipping people that are bothered by this. They begin to tear their garments, which is a symbol of this is blasphemy. I'm distressed. Only God alone receives the glory. And so how does Paul preach his message to these pagan people who are steeped in mystic heathenism? Is he going to pull out the Old Testament and say, okay, the law of Moses says. Is he going to talk about the story of David? Is he going to talk about Moses and the Red Sea? No, these people have no idea. Those things are crucial to the biblical narrative. Those things are important. But he's going to start further back. Where is he going to start? Genesis 1-1. He's going to start with creation. If you look at verse 15, notice what he says. In verse 15, He says, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. He's starting with the gospel that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and that's all that is in them. So what he's doing is he's saying there's one God. He is the creator God in your pantheon of gods where you believe in all these gods and goddesses there's one God he's the living God Genesis 1-1 in the beginning was the beginning God created the heavens and the earth God has created all things and then he goes to common grace he says, God in His common grace has given you crops. He's given you rain. He's allowed you to live. He's not left Himself without a witness. You are living and breathing today because God has been gracious to you. The sun shines, God is gracious. The rain falls, that is gracious. You have a crop, God is gracious. Now, this is called common grace, it's not saving grace. See, here's common grace. Does God, as the creator of the universe, have every right to destroy rebel sinners on the spot and give no explanation? Yes, he does. But he allows sinful people to live, to make a living, to earn food, to earn I mean to earn money to to, to pay for things. He gives common grace to people. But here's the issue. The issue is when you worship the gifts over the giver of the gifts. And that's what Paul says. Notice what he says there in verse 15. He says, Turn, repent, forsake these vain things. These vain things. Repent from elevating all these things above the giver. Repent from idolatry, if you will. Repent from this vain idolatry. Repent from taking what God has created and making an ultimate thing in the place of God. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and reptiles. you you make this exchange. One of the key words in that passage scripture, if you have your Bible, go back and circle the word exchange. That's what idolatry is. It's making an exchange. What are you exchanging? You're exchanging the glory of God for something that God has created and that's called idolatry. Idolatry means you take something that God has created and you elevate it to the position of Godhood. And you obsess over that thing, you worship that thing, you're driven by that thing, you're motivated by that thing. Everything in your life is centered upon that one thing. And idols don't have to be bad things. Oftentimes we think of an idol as something bad. An idol can be good. A spouse, a job, a child. Let me free you up this morning. Because I think there's one thing that a lot of married couples are in danger of doing. You can actually make your spouse out to be an idol. Let me, let me give you some, some... If you're getting married here this morning or you're, you're newly married or thinking about getting married, let me give you some words of wisdom. Do not go into a marriage expecting your spouse to meet all of your needs. If you do that, you are deluded from personal experience <laughs> and also from the Bible. No one person was ever given to you by God to meet all of your needs. Only Jesus can meet all of your needs. And here's what happens when you begin to idolize your spouse. When they don't meet all of your needs, what do you do? You get frustrated, you get angry, you get bitter, you get discouraged because what you've done is you've taken the place of, you've made them to have the place of Christ in your life. Only Christ meets all of your needs. Now, God has given that spouse to you as a gift, but then if that person has been elevated to a God, you've got the whole marriage out of whack. In the end, if Christ is not the center of your life, everything else is a vain idol. Tim Keller gives an excellent definition of what an idol is. Let me read this to you. He says, It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart. Can I just stop? Is it really cold in here to you guys? Can we just turn the heat on back there, guys? I don't know how the air conditioner got on, but if I'm cold, there's something wrong. Because usually by the end of the service, I'm like burning up. And I'm like, it was so hot in there. And Don's like, oh, it was freezing. And I'm like, if I'm cold, I'm sure that other people are probably sitting there freezing. So hopefully we'll get the heat going. I'll, we'll, we'll bring the heat this morning. Hopefully it gets going here, okay? All right, let me, let me give you this quote from Tim Keller. He says this, it is any, it, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly be worth living. That's an idol. And see, our culture is steeped in idolatry. And it's very easy to look at the pagan culture out there and say, man, the culture's so bad. But what's even scarier is when we look in our own hearts and see the idolatry that's there. And we need to address the idolatry in our own hearts first. And what does Paul say? Turn from these vain things. Treasure Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So Paul's message is a message of repentance. Turn from idolatry. Turn from all these things that you're elevating above Jesus and treasure Christ. Now, we don't have the full sermon here. I'm assuming that Paul began to talk about Jesus, the death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ is the only way to God, and he offers forgiveness of sins if you repent. But what he does here is, is he almost doesn't have a chance to finish the sermon, because what do the people do? They still try to offer sacrifices and make them gods. And what ends up happening? Jews come from Antioch I mean from Iconium they travel a hundred miles probably on foot because they're so bent on putting an end to Paul and Barnabas so what do they do they whip the crowd up into a frenzy remember the Lystrans were were gullible they were superstitious and so just just the persuasive nature of these Jews coming the pendulum has swung before it was let's make them gods and goddesses pendulum has swung to let's stone them And that's what happens. You read the text and they find out they drag Paul out the city. They stone him. They leave him for dead, thinking that he has died. Look at 2 Corinthians 11.25, what Paul says. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, speaking of this situation. Three times I was shipwrecked. and night and day I was adrift at sea. 2 Timothy 3.11, he talks about this. My persecution and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all these the Lord rescued me. So there's a price to be paid for being faithful to the gospel. Hopefully, none of you in this room are going to be physically brutalized by being stoned for your faith here in northeastern Colorado. It's probably not going to happen. But. And the more and more I'm talking to some of you and the more I hear your stories, it's amazing how much hostility just comes towards those that want to stand up for Christ. From family members, from the workplace, from neighbors. If you're going to stand strong on the the central belief system of Christianity, we should expect hostility. But here's the issue. Do we truly believe in the power of the gospel to save? Because if we believe in the power of the gospel, then it doesn't matter what persecution comes our way. We know that when the gospel goes forth, people are going to get saved. It's not what we say. It's what the gospel does in its power. So we don't need to back down. Okay. Hostile persecution, the first thing they encountered. Heathen paganism. But the third thing that we see here at the close of their missionary journey is they preach the gospel for the health of new believers. Now, this is where it gets interesting because what Paul and Barnabas do, can you just throw that map back up there? I know you, you may have to go all the way back there, but if you go and look at the map, we'll get, yeah, okay, so, all right, they're in Lystra. They, he gets stoned in Lystra. He goes down to Derbe, and what you find out is he's going to go back through all those towns again, on the way back to Antioch. And here's the question, why in the world would you go back through those towns that you just got stoned in? Why would you go back to the towns where you just were persecuted? What in the world caused Paul and Barnabas to go back? If I was them, where would you go? You'd make a beeline from Derbe back to Antioch, wouldn't you? But they go back through the towns. So let's see how this unfolds and find out why. So let's look at verses 21 through 28 and see what happens. Verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, that's Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. What were they doing as they were returning to those towns they were persecuted in? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed." Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. Okay, why did they go back? Because you have a bunch of baby Christians and a bunch of infant churches that need to be strengthened, need to be encouraged. Paul is a good missionary. He's not just going to leave these churches to to, to fend for themselves. I mean, they're in the the ferocious clutches of these wolves. I mean, Paul had just gotten stoned, and so what Paul's going to go back is he's going to go do a disciple-making ministry. Notice what he says there in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples. Paul is following what Jesus Christ had told him to do in the Great Commission. What does the Great Commission tell us to do? Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples. Disciples. Paul made disciples. Same Greek word. We are to go and make disciples. Now, we know that disciple making involves baptizing and teaching, but right here we see four, thing, four things that Paul does as he goes back and begins to disciple these churches. It's one thing to preach the gospel and see people come to faith in Christ. That's the beginning stage of disciple making, but disciple making is never done we're always making disciples. And so Paul's going to go back and he's going to be strengthening and encouraging. So let's see the first thing Paul does is he strengthens the souls of the disciples. Verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. When they first became Christians, they needed strength. Now, why would they need strength? Think of what they're coming out of. They're brand new Christians who've come out of darkness into light. They may still have some of the old friends they had. They're now struggling with sin. They're now an attack of Satan. They're in an attack of opposition. Paul has to go and strengthen them. And that's what we need. We need to be strengthened in our faith because let's just, just face it. Most of us here, if we're honest with ourselves, if, we were, if I were to say, how many of you guys feel like you're strong Christians? Who would raise their hand? What if I said, how many of you guys are weak Christians, but you're trusting in a strong Savior? Most of us would raise our hands. We need strength from each other, strength from the Lord. Secondly, Paul encouraged them. Paul encouraged them to continue in the faith. Encouraging means he came alongside them. He walked with them. He discipled them. Um, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he's strengthening them, he's encouraging. Third thing he's doing, he's teaching them. Now, what's he teaching them? You may think, well, what do you see teaching there? Notice what he says next saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Yeah, I just got stoned, so I'm gonna tell you guys, be prepared for tribulation. This is not the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. He's basically saying, I just got stoned, you may get stoned, you're in a hard place. There's going to be trials and tribulations and persecutions. It's part and parcel of the Christian life. You need to come and expect that. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3-4, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you're enduring. Paul says to the Thessalonian church, In the midst of all your persecutions, your faith is growing. Your love is growing. And Paul says, that's what I'm here to do, is to train you that that there's going to be persecutions. And then fourthly, he raises up new leadership. Notice what he says there, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Okay, you got these infant churches... Who's going to be the pastoral leadership team? Who are going to be the elders in these churches? So Paul and Barnabas go and they appoint pastors and elders and leaders so that when they leave, those churches can still survive with godly leadership. And so that's part of disciple making is raising up leaders. And I pray that we are a church that raises up leaders. We need more elders. We need more deacons. We need more uh, growth group leaders. We need more more workers, more volunteers. Um, I don't want to create a culture here at Emmanuel where it's consumeristic, where everything's about what does this church have to offer me that's not the question the question is how do i serve god through his church and we need a church that values these things strengthening encouraging training and it all comes back to the gospel it all comes back to gospel do you realize how many times the word gospel shows up in this passage oftentimes we think of the gospel as what the gospel is what a lost person needs to hear in order to get saved right and then we go on from there been there, done that, got the t-shirt, I heard the gospel, I'm saved, I don't need to hear about it anymore. Hopefully by now, after seven years of of me standing in front of you, you would say, "Eh, wrong. The gospel is not only for our salvation, it's for our sanctification as well. Let me give you another quote from Tim Keller. He says, we should never get, quote, beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it's more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make progress in the kingdom. Now here's the final movement. Hostile persecution, heathen paganism, health of new believers. Here's the fourth thing. They celebrate the gospel at home with their church family. They end up back in Antioch. Now remember back in chapter 13, Antioch is their home church. The Holy Spirit sets them apart to be missionaries. They're sent out. They do their missionary work. They come back. They gather the church together and notice what they say. They're going to give a report. They gather the church together. We want to hear what happened on your missionary journeys. And so they have like a missions report of what happens. But notice verse 26. It's a very interesting statement. And there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had what? Fulfilled. They finished what God told them to do. They were obedient. Now they finished it for now. We'll see there's two more missionary journeys, but for this missionary journey, they were done. God said, you're done for now. They had fulfilled it. They had been obedient. And notice what they tell when they gather the church for the report. Notice what the focus is on. Look at Apollo Barnabas said. Look at all the things that we did we're the super apostles i mean they thought i was hermes and they thought barnabas was zeus i mean we were awesome now we got stoned along the way but hey we were awesome they could have come back and lied to the church and said it was great it was glorious but listen to what they say verse 27 when they had arrived and gathered the church together they declared all that god had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It was all about God. God's glory, God's sovereignty, God's will, God's agenda, God's plan. It wasn't our agenda, our will, our plan. And notice what he says, how God opened a door. He opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's, that's Paul's favorite expression about his, about his ministry. Opening a door. 1 Corinthians sixteen nine, For a wide door of effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Right there. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2.12 When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ even though a door was open for me in the Lord. And then Colossians 4.3 This is what I think we as a church should be praying and what you as an individual should be praying. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Are we praying for open doors? Are we praying for opportunities to share the gospel? And then finally, look at the last sentence there. They remained no little time with the disciples. It took time and energy, extended time and energy, continually to meet with these disciples because disciple-making is a process to becoming more and more like Jesus. That's why when we think of disciple-making, disciple or, or, or we, we often think, okay, a person is converted, they become a Christian, okay, we made a disciple. Wrong. That's just the beginning point. Do you realize if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you are a disciple, and you're in the process of disciple making, you're you're becoming a disciple, you're becoming more and more like Jesus. That's ultimately what the goal of your life is, is to be more and more like Jesus to the glory of God. And that's why it always comes back to the gospel because we need to have the gospel preached to us every week from the stage. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. The gospel needs to immerse our families. The gospel needs to be on our conversations. We need to be talking about pra- uh, living in the truths of the gospel. We need to be immersed in the gospel. Jonathan Edwards gave an interesting illustration about this whole power of being immersed in the gospel. Here's an interesting thing. How do you tell someone what honey tastes like? I mean, you could sit here and say, well, here's the chemical compound of the, you know, when the bee comes and makes it and, you know, it, it tastes kind of sweet. Most of you here, if you were to tell someone how tiny honey tastes, what would you do? Go to your cabinet and give them what? Taste it. Taste the honey. And, and Jonathan Ever says a lot of times what we do in the Christian life is we tell people about Jesus we talk about Jesus and people have this head knowledge of Jesus but no one fully experiences the power of Jesus unless they have the honey burst in their mouth. And so here's the issue. I think a lot of us are content just to talk about Jesus. I I guarantee you, most of you in this room, if I were to come and corner you in the hallway out there and say, okay, you've got 30 seconds from Pastor Sean, give me the gospel. You'd say, okay, uh, Jesus lived, he died on the cross, he rose again, um, he forgives me of my sins, boom, I did it. I Please, Pastor Sean, now I can get back to what I was doing so I don't get you know, caught in a corner. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that to you. But I'm saying most of you out here know the facts of the gospel. You can articulate what the gospel is. And I'm afraid for many Christians, we can articulate the facts, but we're not enthralled with Jesus. We haven't been captivated by the glory of Christ. It's, it's like we're, we're telling people about honey, but we're not experiencing the honey ourselves. Let me, hear, let me tell you what J.D. Greer says in his book, Gospel. He says, being able to articulate the gospel with accuracy is one thing. Having its truth captivate your soul is quite another. Has the truth of the gospel captivated your soul? I'm afraid that as, as a church, we can be very cognitive and say, you know, we know the gospel around here cognitively. But do we love Jesus passionately? And do those truths captivate our soul? One of the ways, the primary way, that we allow the truth of the gospel to captivate our souls is through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. You see, in the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity for us to celebrate what Jesus Christ has done. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, there's a lot of different metaphors that God could have used for the Lord's Supper. But for some strange reason, known only to God, he's giving us something that we taste. It's, it's something that we ingest. We've got the bread that represents the body of Christ. We've got the cup that represents the, the blood of Christ. And we can look at these things and say, okay, that's bread, that's drink. And wouldn't it be really weird if we said, this do doing remembers to me and we all just stood there and we stared at our elements. Okay, what do we do now? We just stare at this all day. What do we do? We take them, right? For a lot of Christians, I think they're just staring at Jesus. Now he's there but do we actually are we captivated Do we taste and see that he's good and so the Lord's Supper is a reminder that we are to feed upon Christ gain our strength from Christ gain our sustenance from Christ he is our all in all he is our treasure he's our everything and then when we come to the Lord's table we're basically saying corporately that we believe that Jesus Christ is our ultimate life there is no life outside of Jesus and so as we come to the Lord's table this morning I want us to be captivated by the gospel. So let me ask you to bow your heads as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning. And as you prepare your hearts to receive from the Lord this morning, spend just a few moments in quiet, silent prayer thanking God that he saved you in the gospel. And the gospel is not only the power of salvation, but it's the power for your sanctification. It's the power for you to be able to walk every day in obedience to Christ. Not in your own willpower, but in the power of the gospel and the power of grace. Spend just a few moments in silent prayer this morning. your heads bowed i want to read to you from first corinthians 11 verse 27 whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the lord let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself Father, we come before you this morning, and we're thankful for the power of the gospel. It does change our lives. It's not just an entry requirement into salvation, but Lord, it's 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 everything—the A to Z of our salvation. And we see Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel in the, in the, in the face of opposition. They preached the gospel in the face of heathen, heathen paganism. They preached the gospel as a way to strengthen these new believers. And then when they came back and celebrated their their missionary journey, it was all about the Gospels, all about what you had done for them. So Lord, may we be a church that doesn't talk about ourselves, but we're talking about you. You and your Gospel are always on our lips. And then our actions reflect what comes out of our mouths to the glory of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask those that are going to be helping.